Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, March 28th, or as we like to call it here, Media Monday. I'll be talking to our fearless leader, John Kelly, about all things media. Today, we'll dig into Chris Wallace, calling his time at Fox News, quote, unsustainable, his jump to CNN Plus, and what that means for the most trusted name in news, and BuzzFeed's investors calling on them to shut down their once mighty news division. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Welcome, everybody, to The Powers That Be. Happy Monday. Uh, your boy Peter is back from a little break. Happy to be here with my main man, John Kelly, for a little bit we do every Monday called Media Mondays. John, did you read this piece about Chris Wallace in the New York Times yesterday? It um, it happened to pop into my feeds. Uh, but <laughs> uh, Peter, welcome back. I just want to tell you I, I missed you. Um, Teddy did well in, in your absence, but I hope you and Katie had a great time in Colombia. We sure did. We sure did. Um, I now that I live on the on the West Coast in Southern California, I forgot what humidity is like. <laughs> so I was down there taking like three showers a day and, and changing outfits repeatedly uh, because I forgot how much I sweat for the first <laughs> thirty five years of my life <laughs> until I went to Columbia. Anyway, John, did you read did you read this piece about Chris Wallace in the in the New York Times uh, yesterday on Sunday? You know, he talked about how his job at Fox News became untenable. And he said, quote, I just no longer felt comfortable with the programming at Fox, uh, you know, which were his, you know, maybe some of his first big comments since leaving Fox and jumping to CNN. But I feel like this article is really about CNN Plus and and just adding some more detail around what Chris Wallace's show is going to be on CNN Plus, but also how fascinating a time this is because CNN is going through a, a, a ton of changes right now. Yeah, it was an interesting story. You know, I think most of our our listeners and and puck readers sort of understand how these things get put together. But it's worth acknowledging <laughs> this this has all the appearances of, of an access piece. I'm sure uh, Michael Grinbaum, the reporter, was um, hot to trot for a while to try and get Wallace to talk to him, and they used the launch of of the show and CNN Plus as an opportunity to do that. So it it seems like it was a pretty controlled environment where Wallace probably, you know, gave some sort of indication early on that he would be a little forthcoming in, in his comments. And certainly the, the lead of the piece, I think, is um, a quote that says, I just no longer felt comfortable with the programming at Fox. Wallace then goes on to to indicate that he, he he's in on the joke that, you know, many people would say, you know, boy, Chris Wallace, seems like you're a, a slow learner here since we, <laughs> we knew years ago that, that Roger Ailes um, had you know, committed disgusting behavior and, and that, you know, there were so many ethical lapses at the at the network. And then in the post 
Murdoch spin, meaning, you know, after Rupert Murdoch sold the majority of the entertainment assets of uh, his media empire to Disney and, and Fox News was, you know, part of a much smaller company run by Lachlan Murdoch, things just went really largely off the rails and, and became the, you know, the network of Tucker Carlson. So, yes, it, it, he probably was a slow learner. He was a guy who has engendered a lot of respect over the years and is very credible. He's hosted presidential debates and he hosts a very sober show on Sunday afternoons. But he was doing this all, you know, with the blinders on sort of like, you know, like, like the, the neighbor looking over the hedges with, with their their fingers, um, you know, just just creasing so they can peek. And um, and he seemed to have a high threshold for for, a, you know, a, a certain lack of morality. That said, on the other hand, this is business and um I'm actually not here to, to criticize him for it. And I agree with you that the piece was largely otherwise about CNN plus uh, Grinbaum asked him what he thought about the Zucker situation. And, and Wallace makes clear that this was not ideal. He, he's not going to go as far as saying it's not what he signed up for, but um, he's he's relatively human about it. What do you think, Peter? Well, one thing that jumped out at me is um, how old Chris Wallace is, because he doesn't look 74 years old, but he is 74. I didn't know that. Uh, another thing that jumped out at me is kind of along the same lines. Uh, Michael Grinbaum, who wrote the piece, has a quote in here where he's describing Chris Wallace's CNN Plus show. Uh, quote, in early episodes, he discusses space travel with Star Trek actor William Shatner, asked the former Disney boss Bob Iger about meeting the Pope, and at one point sings a warbling duet with the songstress Judy Collins. Um, and so, you know, Michael Grimbaum winks at this, but <laughs> this programming seems like deliberately designed to attract an older viewer, uh, even as CNN Plus is, you know, designed, you know, broadly to reach reach younger viewers. I'm just sort of interested in what the market is going to be for that show because, you know, Chris Wallace's calling card is just straight up kind of political talk, political hosting, that 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 classic Sunday show vibe. And, you know, this just cuts to a larger question about CNN Plus, which is, are we getting another version of CNN or are we getting a more of like a lifestyle sort of a streaming platform? And it, it very much feels like like the latter. And I think we, we've seen hints of that because, you know, Allison Roman, Ava Longoria are going to be on CNN Plus. Uh, they're migrating the Anthony Bourdain catalog to CNN Plus. So, you know, I, I just feel like there are a lot of questions out there early on. Like, why would I want a streaming version of CNN? But, you know, this adds more more color to it to suggest that that's actually not what we're getting. Is that what you read, read into it? Yeah, it's funny. This is actually one of those, like, deceptively simple what you see is what you get media situations where, to me, and I mean this with the utmost respect, the Chris Wallace show, I, I, they're What's the name for it again? It's um, it's uh, oh, who's talking to Chris Wallace? Yeah. So <laughs> this is what it's going to be called. The, exactly. The name of the show is "Who's Talking to Chris Wallace," which is a very sort of you know Norman Rockwellish you know Saturday Evening Post type type um, uh, wink and nod uh, you know older guy uh, witticism. But to me, this is simple. This is going to be seen in Plus's Lily Hummer, which, if you remember, was Netflix's first foray into. Um, into scripted, it, it starred uh, little Stevie Van Zandt, who had been, you know, the um, in the E Street Band, and of course with, with Silvio Dante from The Sopranos. And the show 
was premised on this mobster who needs to go in the, in the witness protection program. And I guess he loved the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, and, and was sent to Lillehammer, where I guess the Olympics were, I think, in the 90s. I can't quite remember the year. Regardless, it was I have a no memory of show. the show. I have no memory of the show. <laughs> oh, my God. It, it was a, a comically horrible show, but it had a star <laughs> in it who was coming off of, you know, the greatest show in, in modern television. And... It was like a very impish first gesture for Netflix at what they were going to do. It didn't work. It, it would begin to work out years later, maybe three or four years later, um, with House of Cards. And I'm pretty sure that this is a similar situation, that Jeff Zucker went after Chris Wallace in in a sort of personnel as politics gesture in an attempt to show we are not a liberal-leaning network. I want to hire a conservative voice. No one's probably going to watch the show because the demo is much older and it, and Discovery is going to make it almost impossible. The guests are all significantly older. I mean, I think you know, Judy Collins and Bob Iger are both in their you know, 70s and 80s. So it's not aimed at what the core audience is going to be. And, and your second point is the point. CNN Plus is a in plain sight, totally strategic attempt to hijack CNN from being a news-first and news-only enterprise to being a lifestyle enterprise and entertainment enterprise with a significantly larger total addressable market. And it's going to, uh, I think it's going to go for $6 a month, which is um, priced as an entertainment bundle. Um, They're not going to price it higher for people who are sort of B2B news consumers. So they're attempting to make this pivot. And, you know, our uh, our man Dylan uh, broke some news on Friday that, Chris Licht, who's the incoming president of the network, the person who's replacing Jeff Zucker, seems to be open to replacing Andrew Morris, who is the person um, in charge of CNN+. So I imagine that they will look for a new steward of this streaming business who has an entertainment background as opposed to a, a news background, which is you know Morris's background. These are all talented people, to be sure, but I think it's pretty clear that they want to push this in in a in a softer focus, as you were saying, with Bourdain, Eva Longoria, Alison Roman, and the like. Yeah, I mean, it's just you know the the New York Times piece makes this point that this is just all happening at a time of great upheaval at, at CNN and and its new corporate overlords. And you you know, part of me thinks they will test drive a bunch of these shows, like who's talking to Chris Wallace and. They may or may not work and they might reshuffle the decks if indeed somebody comes in to replace Andrew Morris, who's been there for quite a while. And his, his whole portfolio at the moment is making sure this this launches well. Um, but Zucker, you know, Zucker was the guy calling the shots right above him and, and micromanaging every single thing at that network, streaming and not. And it's beginning on shaky turf, I guess I will say. But I just want to add, let me add one other asterisk to your point, because I, I agree with you. I think from, from a programming perspective, it's no secret that that there is no golden goose here yet. Um, and that's okay. This is going to take time. But here is the thing that I would look to as, as the sort of key challenge that needs to be addressed immediately. And I, and I don't know if it is, but I think it's, it's been overlooked. CNN, like any other broadcast network, lives and dies by ratings. But actually, the core marketing of the brand is something that was taken care of decades ago, even in the Ted Turner era, when they were getting CNN onto every cable bundle, every every retransmission fee, that CNN is everywhere. You know, the purpose of a CNN executive producer or programmer or C-suite executive is to get people to tune into CNN over MSNBC or Fox or, or something else, or, or, or you know, maybe on a Saturday evening to, to watch a documentary rather than, than watch, you know, a, a 
some sort of schlock on Netflix because it's already there. It's in the bundle and we're all paying invisible fees for it. The next challenge in this direct-to-consumer over-the-top world is going to be to get people flat-footed who are not thinking about CNN to actually download and pay for this service. They are starting from a uh, you know a, a, an earlier position that they've never actually encountered before, and that is a extraordinary marketing might. And Netflix has proven to be incredible at it. I think you know the ascent of Disney Plus is in large part due to the the great catalog of stuff they have in in Marvel and and the Mandalorian. But it's also because Disney is an extraordinary marketing company, and they have those core competencies as you know as marketers. Does that talent exist inside of CNN and inside of the Warner Brothers Discovery um, organization? I think that is the secret that we will see answered in the next year or two, because it is a totally different skill than what uh, you know what, what they've been previously judged on, which is talent. Yeah, and I also I also want to think that you know it's not just a totally different skill; it's a totally different worldview. Like if you are hosting. Uh, a show on CNN, if you are booking a show on CNN, if you are producing a show, if you're writing scripts for a show on CNN, television, there's just decades of institutional knowledge and expectations about what's a win and what's a loss every day. Like you said, built around ratings. If you're starting a brand new network and you're Chris Wallace or any of these other hosts that they've paid a lot of money for, and you start out streaming and you're not... (laughs) You know, I, and I don't think they'll be public with their numbers immediately or even for a very long time because it takes a very long time to build an audience from scratch, which is more or less what they're doing. I know they're going to be bundled with other properties and, you know, hopefully there'll be some, for them, incidental viewers who will come over from watching another show after seeing another show promoted, you know, in their in their stream. But Chris Wallace has been doing this for a very long time and ratings is what, he's used to. And here, I don't know what CNN Plus's endgame is for how many total subscribers they're trying to get, how many viewers they want per each hour of the show, but it's really not going to be a lot. And it's not going to be a lot for a very long time. I mean, they, you know, hopefully for them, they get there. But that digital streaming ecosystem is just very different from broadcast and cable. And I think a lot of the hosts need to be okay with that and be patient with that. And and the same for the show staffs over there. It takes time to build an audience and brand awareness for, you know, a bunch of brand new shows. And that's going to be just an institutional challenge I think they're going to have to face. Yeah, it, it is. And, and there's, but there's also an economic of scale, economics of scale uh, challenge to think about The Athletic, which was just purchased by The Times for $550 million. They have 1.2 million subscribers. I think the average revenue per user is about, you know, let's say 50 or $60 a year, which is close to what CNN Plus is talking about in, in $6 a month, right? That would be around theirs too. And they're paying sports writers, you know, whatever sports writers make. Um, they're not paying them 3 or $4 million a year with executive producers who are making hundreds of thousands. So this is a very, very expensive proposition. And you're totally right. They probably don't have to break out the numbers for the first number of quarters. But they will increasingly be judged. And I do think that um, CNN is a very valuable part of the uh, Warner Brothers Discovery portfolio. But I imagine that there'll be a lot of pressure to handle this, like to actually execute it from a marketing standpoint. I would say too, this is not me stirring the pot um, with any conspiracy theory, but Alison Gallist, who was the, the CMO of CNN, is um, is obviously no longer there. She and Jeff Zucker are in a relationship. And 
as everyone now knows, I imagine the next CMO of CNN is going to be the most important job in media in the next 12 months. All right, John, quick timeout. We are going to take a quick break. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Welcome back, everyone. John, we were just talking about how CNN Plus might not be public with their numbers for a while, but I want to ask about a place that's dealing with some very bad numbers right now, and that's BuzzFeed, which, according to CNBC, is losing about $10 million a year. Um, its stock price via SPAC, I believe, um, is slightly under $5 a share, which is about half as much as it was a few months ago. And their investors are basically telling them uh, because these numbers are so bad, you know, after about a decade of of buzz, for lack of a better word, and 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 you know, a, a glow around BuzzFeed, investors are telling them to shut down BuzzFeed News. Um, which, if you're listening to this and you're on Twitter and you care about news and media and politics, you probably think of BuzzFeed News as BuzzFeed and vice versa. But BuzzFeed <laughs> is, you know, really what it was in the very beginning, which is you know, lists, celebrity gossip, the 10 TikToks you need to see, behind the scenes photos, you know, I, you know, they are built around social and sharing. But I, I looked at their homepage, which again is not, you know, what BuzzFeed is built on, but it does give a hint as to what their editorial priorities are, you know. And as I'm scrolling through buzzfeed.com right now, there's not a single news story on here. There's not a story about Ukraine. There's not a you know, scoopy story about what's going on inside of Biden's West Wing. You know, there's just lifestyle, cooking, Disney, book reviews, Marvel, products. You know, that's really what drives BuzzFeed's business. And the cold-eyed investors who have skin in the game here are like, why are you still running this, this newsroom that's losing so much money? What are you hearing in New York, you know, about all this stuff happening right now over there? Yeah, you know, this is um, this is a sad and complex story, I think, on, on a number of levels. Um, you're right. BuzzFeed News is losing $10 million a year. I think BuzzFeed itself, which is now, as you mentioned, a, a roll-up of, of not just the news division, but also Tasty and Complex and Huffington Post. They, they, they made a number of acquisitions before going public via uh, a SPAC, you know, which is sort of a blank check companies that got really popular during the, the pandemic and are, you know, backfiring now. I think BuzzFeed's uh, EBITDA is like 30 million. So in- investors are, are gesturing that this 10 million loss is material. And I think what what they're what Jonah Peretti, the CEO, is going through the motions of now is not saying I'm gonna that he's gonna get rid of BuzzFeed News altogether, but they are going to so dramatically diminish it that um, that it is going to be not the sort of environment that the people who run the organization want to be part of. And, and Mark Shoops, who is the editor in chief, the guy who replaced Ben Smith. He resigned last week. Ariel Kamner, an old buddy of mine from the Times, uh, who was one of his deputies, resigned. Uh, now, Samantha Hennig, um, who actually was my old like cubicle mate with the Times Magazine in 2011, is running the joint. She's wonderful. And uh, they're lucky that that she'll be there as a uh, a salve as, it, as they figure this out. 
But here's the rub, man. And I, and I think that this is something that like journalists are so close to it that it's hard to talk about it honestly. BuzzFeed is going through something on a smaller scale that every large media company is going through. Our colleague, Bill Cohan, wrote a great piece a couple of weeks ago about how Paramount Global you know, may be considering selling some of the CBS assets one day, not because they want to, but because the market wants them to if they're eventually going to sell Paramount Global to Comcast. These news assets are less attractive in many cases than they, they used to be. Um, many of the largest acquirers have signaled that they don't want to uh, take them over for, for a number of reasons. So I think BuzzFeed, which has had a very unpleasant life in the public market, you're right. It, it went public at $10 a share. It's under $5 a share now. I think the, we were, I was checking the market cap as we were chatting before. You had $655 million now. So I think BuzzFeed raised capital five years ago at a, about a $2 billion valuation. So a lot of investors are, are not going to be made, made whole necessarily unless significant changes are, are made. And I think it's clear that um, that BuzzFeed News is the one that's under the most pressure. I would only say this, though, and I'm not trying to be Pollyanna here. BuzzFeed News did some great stuff. And, and we're like totally in the generation that that it, it admired it, right? And admired the work that particularly under Ben that they did. I don't think this is a rejection of journalism at all. But I think what we are seeing here, and, and maybe this is me talking my own book a little bit, but the model didn't work. This was not the business model for journalism, right? BuzzFeed came in, to their credit, Jonah Peretti believed that to make BuzzFeed serious, he needed a news division. He found a great editor to do it. But it became clear that over time, they were of the mind that CPM, which is the, you know, the sort of rate of digital advertising, the, the you know, click per million, per, per thousand, um, was going to go up. It went down. And the work became commoditized and discovery became harder and the brand, because it needed the traffic to compete globally, became less associated with great journalism than the other stuff that you mentioned that's on the homepage now. So it wasn't the model. The good news is the models are being created now. You know, I think we're, we're all figuring out that that was sort of a, a necessary step to get where we are going. Um, but it's painful. And I think for people who are our age, um, older millennials, senior millennials, whatever, whatever we are, it's um, BuzzFeed was such a was such a, a cornerstone of our careers as something that you were always paying attention to that this is a sad step, but I think it's only a temporarily sad one. You and I are both lucky to have come up in the era of, of digital disruption. And we have one foot in kind of old school traditional journalism and all of the the values and all the good stuff that we learned from back in the day. But we also understand, we understood how to surf um, through, you know, a lot of change when our older colleagues were, didn't know how to deal with it. But then, you know, we are slightly older than, than some journalists and newsroom leaders who came up, you know, after us and were accustomed to the digital universe. I used Ben Smith as a, as a role model. I mean, we're pals now, but you know, when I was at CNN and he was at Politico, I, I admired what he was doing with his blog there back back in the day. And then when he went to do BuzzFeed, I later I was approached by Snapchat, and I I even told Dylan Byers, who who scooped that I was leaving CNN to Snapchat, that you know this was you know kind of inspired by Ben. You know, I was looking toward digital media, and I wanted to build something new and do something different. And and I admired him and BuzzFeed for what they did. But the the flip side of that is. And you saw this with Huffington Post and, and Deadspin and a lot of writers there along with BuzzFeed that they took these jobs thinking that this kind of, you know, digital newsroom and, and the 
you know, the discoverability around it and the ad supported business model of digital was the future. And, you know, what they should have said was, this is cool for now, but I got to keep looking around the corner <laughs> to see what, what else is, is next. You know, there's, there's people, I remember when BuzzFeed did a round of layoffs, maybe in like 2017 or 2018. And like, they had a reporter in like Hawaii, just covering like Hawaii stuff. And, you know, that, that person was on Twitter being like, sad day for journalism, you know? And it's like, my question was like, why did, why did BuzzFeed have a reporter in Hawaii? It was like, you just overscaled massively. And, you know, no wonder <laughs> you were one of the first people who got the slice there. Like, you know, it's easy to say that kind of thing in hindsight, but this goes back to something I always say is you can't just be a journalist in a newsroom these days. You have to understand the fundamentals of the business of where you're working and also the marketplace. You know, it's not just about the cool brand you're working for. If it's not built on something sturdy, then your job is precarious and it's on you to kind of sniff around the marketplace and make sure that you're safe and and surf the wave every two, three years and, and figure out if it's working for you or if it's not. And a lot of people at BuzzFeed who may or may not leave the place soon um, might be might be suffering from that. No, you're totally right. And, and to be sure, like there were some pretty promiscuous mistakes that BuzzFeed made from an investment standpoint. Um, it wasn't the only company. Uh, I, I think Huffington Post was the first to sort of assume that you could set up these regional outposts anywhere from Hawaii to Timbuktu and, and you could get bajillions of, of, you know, monthly active users out of it. We know it didn't work out that way. BuzzFeed actually, from a sort of Jonah Peretti standpoint, they've done a very good job of, of rewriting their narrative to, to look like um, uh, virtue signalers when in, in the end there were some, you know, if we're being honest here, there were, there were some significant financial uh, mistakes that, that happened and, and are being corrected for now. But you're right. I think that that's actually changing, though, that, that uh, journalism is becoming a, a much more business-friendly organization, uh, you know, sort of industry. In the past, there was a sort of um, a pride in, in among journalists in explaining that they didn't they didn't know how they were paid, they didn't know what their business models were, it didn't matter. And now, um, you know, we make fun of Gen Z in a number of ways, but one thing that they have kind of gotten right is I think that they are more alive to um, to that responsibility, and and the industry will change because of it. I agree. All right, John. Um, there's so much to talk about in media always. I, you know, for everyone listening, John and I talked beforehand and we have like 25 subjects to talk about that then we end up talking for an hour. <laughs> so we have to keep it tight. John, we'll see you next Media Monday, hopefully. Yeah, I'll see you next Monday, Peter. Thanks, man. And every Monday after that. Every, every Monday from here to eternity. <laughs> Perfect. That's a very strong business model. Um, all right, cool. Talk soon, man. Bye. All right. Later, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 